0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick O'Hara Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who could use his chin as a deadly weapon.
1: <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and uh, my, my very sharp deadly weapon chin just nestles right into Kirk Douglas's dimpled chin. <clears throat> and we become the Wonder Twins. Pat, also joining us uh, is Adam Speakerman. Welcome, Adam good to be back good to have you back uh you were on a bonus, our january bonus episode before that i don't remember when the last time you were on was uh, uh probably it's stagecoach always... oh yeah it was it would have been stagecoach uh yeah uh which was really fun too yeah, yeah always a always a pleasure to have you very glad to have you this time
2: thanks for having me back it's good to be here mm.
1: Hey, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's Patreon.com slash lost Criterion. Over there for a dollar a month you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. It's always a non criterion film we do. I put together a little list for supporters to vote on. We have a lot of fun with that. As of this recording, our most recent one in the bag is uh is a really fun one. We watch Joe versus the volcano. Ah for our for our February bonus. And uh yeah. Yeah, I Adam hasn't heard it yet. It hasn't gone out yet. But, no. Uh, Pat yeah. and I recorded it last night and uh had a lot real good time with her with our friend Jonathan Hape because it is it is Jonathan Hape's movie. It is nice. Everybody's got that one movie they they watch repeatedly it, it, as it a fits child.
0: Into a it's it's it is yeah. the most Jonathan Hate movie that could ever exist, with the possible exception of Surf Ninjas, as he yeah. pointed out earlier. <laughs> yes. He had I can hear he had, uh, uh, uh
2: Tennessee Ernie Ford in my head already, just hearing <laughs> the name of that
1: and picturing the opening with the zigzag walkway. Oh, yeah. It's oh, so yes. iconic. Oh yeah. So it's very fun to talk about it with someone yeah. who uh, very deeply loves that movie. Uh but yeah, we uh we have a lot of fun over there and supporters do on quite a number of occasions they have suggested lists uh for instance adam back in january uh, was the one who suggested our ozu list that we ended up going with oh we invited him and another uh, of our supporters onto that episode and had a lot of fun talking about tokyo twilight with them so if you want to buy your way onto a podcast Uh, It's really cheap. Just $1. (laughs) Support us at patreon.com. Well, $1 and a good idea. It (laughs) requires both. You do have to have good ideas also. It's worth noting. That's fair. That's fair. A little above that $1 mark at $5. uh, We'd like to uh, thank those folks on air who can afford to help us keep going a little bit more. So thank you so much to our $5 supporters, Andrew Jarrett, Chris Otto, Eric Coronado, and Stephen Goldmeyer. Thank you. bit above that, we do something pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little personalized thank you note, and send that out once a month. Uh it's really fun. I love I love sharing <laughs> Pat's art with with everybody. Uh, and I know Pat loves making it. Whether or I not do, I broke my. He device, believes it's any do. good. Yeah. No,
0: Pat. Well, it's not well, completely I guess... broken. I need to get. A, I need to go buy a soldering iron, but it'll be fine.
1: If you if you break a device designed to create visual interference, does it just make worse visual interference? Well, actually, it does. It does make
0: more visual interference. The problem is, is that if I break off the input, which is what is breaking,
1: if it completely (laughs) separates, you
0: stop being getting interference, and you just get nothing. (laughs) It's a fine line between interference and nothing, uh, as it turns out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, we also like to thank our $10 supporters on air. And thank you so much to Jason Westaber, Patrick Yako, Tracy McGrath, Nina Bajnak. and hey, Adam Speakerman. Thanks for being a $10 supporter as well. If you want to see those postcards without committing to that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com, search your lost and criterion there, and the uh, past postcards will come up. You can buy them as postcards, as greeting cards, as stickers, as magnets, as pins. and one is a t-shirt. But thank you so much to everybody who has purchased anything off of that Redbubble. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon. And thank you for listening. Friends, this week we are talking about a Stanley Kubrick film. I realized as we were preparing to watch Paths of Glory uh, that I think 2001 is the only Stanley Kubrick film I've ever actually watched all the way through. Really? Uh, no, that's not true. Because we've watched Spartacus as part of the collection. So, uh, you know, I forgot that that's I true. Spartacus. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, so Sp- yeah. Spartacus in 2001 were the only Stanley Kubrick films I'd seen before this week. It turns out. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's got a big hole. I've never watched uh, all of The Shining. Uh, the Shiny the might China.
0: be one of my favorite movies of all time. So you should, yeah. you, should, you, should you should, you should watch it sometime, mm-hmm. please. And we have sounds like a bonus. <laughs> Doctor Strangelove <also. laughs> is also a movie I love <laughs>
1: very, very much.
0: Which is in the collection now. Doctor Strange so, is in the collection. Yeah, but like, I have, what
1: number is it? Is it like, like
0: 1,100 million years, years from now?
1: It is, yeah. It is pretty far away. Doctor Strange loves another movie I've seen parts of, but never sat down and watched the whole thing. Um, and uh, and we talked about doing Eyes Wide Shut for last year's holiday special, but uh, we pushed yeah. it uh, It keeps getting pushed to do something off a little year. more fun. <laughs> it's, been, yeah. it's
0: been a topic of conversation over, over multiple years. <laughs> every time it's like, mm, we'll do it next time. Um, yeah full metal it's jacket just, i think a... i've only ever seen the usa version as we've talked about we've talked about this a lot recently yes. but the the edited usa version of full metal jacket is i think the only version i've ever seen which they yeah. again the standby uh, is like i
2: didn't know there were multiple versions well of that no one.
0: the um the, USA the television, television edit network, is what he meant. Uh, like yeah. I, i've oh, seen a yeah. lot yeah, of movies well. in that format where like for a while there i guess in like the late 90s mid to late 90s usa was convinced that you could make any movie appropriate for like middle-of-the-day audiences if you just edited out the curse words and the blood so like yeah.
2: uh, any movie like uh happy gilmore like uh uh the price is wrong bobby yes where it's actually a better line than it is in like the actual we were, movie we were yes. yeah. talking about this
0: because i for a long time uh, the only version of um good morning vietnam i had ever seen was the usa version and I personally would like a copy of that movie with those edits in there because the the insults are insane because they're just trying to get them close <laughs> enough to the mouth, like, sync up that, like, I, it's – they're madness. I love it so much. But, yes, Full Mile Jacket, that's the only version I've ever seen.
2: There are a lot of 80s and early 90s movies I've only ever – Seen in quote marks, yeah, because they played on a continual loop on like yes, TNT and TBS, yes, and I'm not sure that I've ever like watched all of Weekend at Bernie's. All <laughs> oh the yeah, yeah, you just finish. seen like bits and pieces of you know, like, Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. at least yeah. yeah, there are so many of those like, like kind of like those those vein of like movies that I just am like Yeah, I've only seen well, parts of those. Yeah. And I've never seen the real R rated right, version, right. just the TNT version. Right. <laughs> and like right.
0: you kinda I find myself wondering so, like you know, I kind of have a nostalgia for those a lot of those movies, but I'm like, they're not good movies, right? These are just mediocre <laughs> movies that were on the <laughs> loop, so I've seen them so many bits and pieces of them so many times that I like think about them and I, they they form some sort of cultural touchstone despite being probably pretty poor movies all in all
2: i don't know i think sometimes that does mean they are they do have more merit than they're giving credit for because they've been capable of becoming a cultural touchstone like you know something like pcu showed on tnt or comedy central a ton but is never going to be a total cultural touchstone yeah yeah yeah.
0: and like i don't remember any lines from it right like it's it's i think the big giveaway is like if you're like if you ever ended up quoting lines from it or like Thinking about lines from it when you were hanging out with your friends who had all seen the same thing, then it probably has some merit. But like a lot of them, you're like, mm, that one just washed away. I don't have it. I I remember the movie, but couldn't like tell you anything. I'm beautiful sure. About it,
1: I'm sure there are people yeah. out there who can quote lots of lines from PCU that you deeply <laughs> offended just now. I know. I know. Uh,
0: I, I'm sure. I'm sure. There's, there's, there's a lot of
2: gutter fans out there.
0: Really there are, hardcore there are. PCU fan <laughs> fandom out there.
1: Ah.
2: they're like gutter made mandalorian man it's true he did
1: (laughs) and he was and he was in actually my touchstone for television edits is a uh, vhs recording off of television i had of swingers oh yes Uh, yes we watched that (laughs) that too many times we watched a lot in high school and was also really terribly edited uh in delightful ways uh but nice enough of that paths of glory from 1957 back to uh (laughs) loosely based on a novel um previously adapted into a flop of a stage play uh and actually that flop of a stage play was done by the the, uh someone who would go on to be the screenwriter for gone with the wind uh huh and after the play failed he's like someone should make a movie out of this and then it took another (laughs) 20 years i think before somebody made a movie out of that um and finally uh kubrick decided to because kubrick and his uh his producer james b Paris, decided they wanted to make a war movie and then somehow picked paths of glory as the war movie they'd make um and it became an anti-war movie uh in as much as yeah we just had that conversation a little bit ago yeah. uh, <laughs> about uh about whether or not an american can make a war movie yeah, we had that
0: conversation. And we've had the conversation
1: about whether or not you can make an anti-war film at <laughs> right. all. Yeah. Many because times. we're 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 recording out of sequence. So this is a little longer ago in Pat and I's Minds than it otherwise would be, but two episodes ago was The Thin Red Line and three episodes ago was Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence, uh which are both anti-war films mm-hmm. in a manner of speaking. Uh Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence very straightforwardly. Uh the Thin Red Line is the sort of anti-war film that you often get in America, where it's uh, a very violent war film to see, to show the tragedy and uh, sacrifice of war, the senseless cost of good men's deaths, and uh, then they still win at the end. And...
0: <laughs> well, they still win at the end, and then also there's a certain sort of glorification of the vi- like. There, it is meant to like show like. Mm-hmm. There's that really hard, like, sort of difficult thing to do, which is, like, I want to show all the violence and how, like, terrible it is. But, like, we've been so, especially as Americans, been so set up to take that sort of, like, violence sort of for granted in films that, like, a a hyper-violent war film that's meant to be about the horrors of war and, like, any given, like, Hollywood action film are borderline indistinguishable from each other in terms of, like amount of right. violence that happens in them.
2: Yeah. Violence is exciting and you as soon as you put it on screen, it's depict you run into the depiction is endorsement right, problem. Yeah, right. Uh so especially with something like Thin Red Line, uh, where it's really punctuating something that has a very different tone otherwise. Uh it really even though it's kind of like traditionally portrayed like in thin red line from what I remember it's still, it's it's in a different world from what like Spielberg did in right. Saving Private Ryan the same year, where he really freaked people out with how he portrayed the landing at Normandy, but inadvertently wound up creating like the aesthetic for war video games right. yes, and yeah. entire subgenres of yeah. war video games, uh, trying to recreate that sensation. Like it was like too intense and then it became an intensity that everyone chased after. And so, you know, even though I would say both of them managed to create a theme that was anti-war with what they were doing, like the, just the act of depicting it, it falls apart. It's too exciting. And eventually it becomes no longer anti-war because it's, you know, it's just like, because you have that separation from the image, you're you're getting to live vicariously through the war. And have a thrill from it, and it undermines well, it. To see and especially
0: it. with something like Saving Private Ryan, you cannot—it's in—it's impossible to control what people will do with that image afterwards, right? Like as you mm-hmm. just pointed out with the video games, yeah, every video game about World War II—that's just looks like now. Like it's just like, oh, we want to make you live through Normandy, but you're—it's still a vicarious experience that like you don't really—it's—it's it's not horrible for you because you're not going to get shot, and people you know didn't not get shot, right? And so video games just chased after it really hard, right? Like, and have basically since Mm -hmm. then.
2: And it's interesting with, like, Kubrick that, you know, you have really the one big scene in the middle. That's the tour de force of, like, with the, you know, the Dolly Crane shot following Kirk Douglas. And it's running into the same problem. It's like it's virtuosic filmmaking that's showing you an approach to like the trench warfare that you haven't seen before uh that's really overwhelming uh at least especially for audiences in the 50s yeah uh which is not to take away from the big parade and all quite on the western front and films that they had seen that had done pretty impressive world war one portrayals right but you know it undermines the anti-war thing to have the thrilling war moment in the, in there, even if you need it contextually to understand what these men are going through. So it's, it's the natural contradiction of making anti-war war war
1: films where, where I think passive glory does get closer to succeeding at least than thin red line. Certainly is that we don't get that moment of catharsis where victory is achieved. Uh yeah. Thin Red Line, they make don't they make it to the top of the hill in Thin mm-hmm. Red Line. They take they take the I mean they're they're very close to the same plot too, right? <laughs> um mm-hmm. as far as the military action in the movie. Uh a suicidal mission to take a hill. And in Thin Red line, line, they make it to the top of the hill and suddenly everyone's a shooting savant and uh yeah. just no killing one ever Japanese misses again. soldiers yeah. left <laughs> and right. Um whereas in Paths of Glory uh obviously for the for the plot of the film, uh, especially, but in Path of Glory everybody fails and in fact the the big military moment of the film ends with a dead body falling on top of our main character.
0: Well and I think that's a that's Which an important incredible. feature, right? Is that like it, yeah. it, you know, I mean you're already like on to that, but like the you know, we do get a very cinematic, very like Engaging sort of initial advance that is that is very like exciting and you know it's it's it gets that the same sort of effect as something like Saving Private Ryan or Thin Red Line or something like that. But what what happens is then they all sort of stall out, right? And then right. they're just sort of hanging out for a while. And then basically we just cut back to the trench, right? Like after that, it's like, oh, now everybody's back here. This is just, I don't know. It it has a different feel to it, but yeah, because it doesn't really. It does. Um, yeah, culminate in anything other than like oh well we're just back in the hole we were in before and
2: it's two other things like when you were mentioning everyone becomes a shooting savant and Thin line. I'm not sure you ever see anyone fire hey, a gun in Paths of so. Glory until they're executed right. I would like to I want to go back now and see because there's no point to any of them firing while they're running because like they can't shoot anything with their right. rifles right. that there's no enemy in front of them to shoot yeah. they're just trying to dodge you know 30 cal machine gun bullets right. and and the other thing that really makes the that advance in passive glory is kubrick used he undermined it ahead of time by having uh mccready uh tell you know just casually say like oh we'll lose 30 percent here right. we'll lose 10 percent there but we'll have like 40 percent left to take the anthill and that should be enough right like he's by cavalierly telling you that he expects like everyone to die and then you go out there and all you see is everybody around kirk douglas dying it's a different impact right. than like we're gonna go take the hill and we'll succeed eventually like it's you know they're telling you from the start it's never going to succeed. Right.
0: Right. So, well, and also they're like unlike something like Thin Red Light in Thin Red Line, other movies in this in this caliber, they like, oh man, this is this is going to be really bad. And you have a few officers like arguing back and forth about whether we should do it or not. But like by giving us those sort of statistics, and then we like watch, you're like, oh yeah, this is a going according to exactly what like what was predicted, right? Like this is following the predicted path. Like everybody's going to die. There's no like there's no real, we know almost within seconds of the advance sort of starting as people are just start dropping like, like, Oh, this is, this is doomed. You know, they're turning around, you know what I mean? Like almost immediately. Um, um,
2: have either of you seen the new all quiet on the Western front? I have not, I have not yet. yet. I actually watched it last week. I, I tried to watch it before I saw paths of glory. There is a, unrelated moment to paths of glory but it's just it's a piece of like trench warfare that is uh, it's a big reveal in the movie and it's like they it really gets at the doom of trench warfare and also why trench warfare like like went out of style with the with the next war with world war ii because of the advances in technology and stuff and it's i've never seen a world war one movie do something like that it's it's very horrifying uh almost like come and see Mm -hmm. kind of interesting but like i don't want to totally spoil it but like you'll know it when you're watching the movie and it suddenly hits this moment and you're just like oh shit yeah (laughs) and it's it's so well done it's really it's it's on my uh, it's
0: not sure
2: it is not an anti-war film it runs into all the same problems uh it's much more of that like kind of like full metal jacket nihilist yeah. approach to how war degrades a person's mental, uh, state, mm-hmm. like until they're just, you know, they're just ground down. Uh, that's always the theme of that book. Uh, and that movie does that really well, but it's not doing what paths of glory does at all. I just was suddenly struck by that comparison of the sense of impending doom. Yeah. Of this, this war and the way war was
1: waged. So. yeah. Yeah. Um, what this movie does you know a straight a straight war movie might have something similar it wouldn't play up the the hypocrisy and condescension of uh the gen- the brigadier general as much as as this movie sort of does but you'd establish those impossible odds and then they'd overcome the impossible odds and that would be great which still happens in uh uh, in and Thin Red Line, well, unfortunately. Well, it happens they in most, most of, most of we're much. talking about, right? right? It happens in Saving Private yeah.
0: Ryan. It happens, it, it's yeah. just, again and again, it's like, well, people don't want to watch a movie about <laughs> losers in general, I guess, right. is to a certain extent the idea, right? Yeah.
2: There's an underlying cynicism to Thin Red, uh, not Thin Red Line, to Saving Private Ryan as well that I think gets lost because it's Spielberg yeah. and it's, it's about a mission. There's... The underlying story is so cynical. It's about, we're going to go on a mission and sacrifice an entire, like, troop to try and save one guy yeah. for nothing other than PR purposes. Right. And there's an affinity to what how Kubrick ex- approaches war in Paths of Glory and Strange Love and, you know, Full Metal Jacket that is that has that touch of cynicism of that, like, even the things that seem heroic, like are just another layer of manipulation right, right. by the people actually right. running it. And I think like that that is definitely there in Saving Private Ryan and something like that has not been in any American war film post 9/11. Oh. You know, like right. you don't get you don't get that anymore in war films. And I mean, I first saw this film in high school, probably as a sophomore or junior, which would have been a year before 9-11 for me mm-hmm. and i imagine this film is no longer taught in high schools <laughs> since nine yeah. eleven. yeah i mean that you know? would not surprise me yeah i it, it... uh yeah so it's just it's it's contemptuous of the entire military leadership and the idea of military leadership and i was really struck watching it this time which is the first time i've seen it since high school uh of how much class critique there is as well mm-hmm. like you know, I always knew it was about like idiotic generals or whatnot. I did not get at all the class distinctions that were that were woven into every moment of politics and uh, and the interrelations of the various officers from Dax and right. you know Adolf Manju and McCready and everybody uh, that. Uh, I, I never picked up on that before. I'm watching it this time, and I was like, holy shit. This is not just about like, the bad military leadership. It's a complete combination of the aristocracy as well. Yeah. And it, that's like really impressed me this time around.
1: Yeah, yeah. Back to, back to something Adam said. I really think you're right that we never see a gun fire until they're executed.
0: Yeah, I, I was trying to think. Like, do we? I, when they go on the night patrol, he only throws a grenade, right? He never actually shoots right. his gun, right? I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't. So think we so, hear,
1: right. we hear distant gunfire from the from the enemies we never see, right? Uh, and we, uh, but what that means is, everyone we see fire any sort of weapon, whether it be th- throw the grenade or or shoot the gun. Does so in the service of killing one of their comrades,
0: right? Yeah. Well, right. and like, and like, yeah. one of the big well, and just, points of yeah. that battle, right, yeah. is the idea that like the the general is willing to like is literally bringing in the biggest kind of gun to to right. to shoot at a comrade, right? Or but but you know <laughs> to, he doesn't view kill them all as, of them. Yeah, doesn't yeah. view them as comrades, right? Views them as right ten soldiers or whatever, right? Um,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah, and and they really reinforce that. Point in so many ways like from early on in the movie to to uh uh to the very end when he's talking about like oh it was such a good execution yes yeah yeah yeah. like they died so wonderfully like and you're just like you bloodthirsty maniac like
0: uh well and it really as you talked about with class like sort of class politics right it really does hit like I don't think this is one of the goals of the movie per se because they're not really trying to critique World War, he's not really trying to critique World War 1 specifically as much as, you know, the, the, you see this whole sort of affair in general but like um the idea that like in especially in World War 1 very very explicitly officer means arist- aristocracy like there no there's no yeah. distinction between those mm-hmm. two things at all we you know, very easily we can point out like the idea, well, modern military and stuff, that's that's still largely true in in, in a sort of le- less yeah, obvious I way. Mean, but you know, in this time it's well like you
2: is. look at you look at Patton was an American aristocrat, right? right? right. And a tank officer in World War One and that's why he's a general in World War Two. But you look at guys that are, you know, five years younger than him, uh Ike and uh um uh, uh MacArthur is that right not not MacArthur because he's an aristocrat as well uh Marshall Marshall and uh anyway the the guy from Moberly Missouri where I'm from and I can't <laughs> <his> name. Um, <laughs> uh, but like some of those generation of of guys that were either too young to be in World War one uh or were Basically, just NCOs in World War One. They hadn't yet gotten their commission, uh, but were generals by the time World War Two came around. Were no longer aristocrats, and that's true in the American military, but it's also true across the continent, mostly because they killed like all, <laughs> right, of, <laughs> all right. of the eligible officers in World War One. Uh, so uh, yeah, like just because like the casualty rates were so incredibly high.
1: So, yeah. Uh Omar Bradley, so. I believe, is who you're Omar Bradley. Is. That is yeah, who I'm it single. is. Yes.
2: Yes. So I was yeah, I was <laughs> born in Moberly, Missouri, and he's like the most famous son of Moberly. Well, yeah. so. but the interesting <laughs>
0: thing we see after that though is that World War II become not the not we can not to spend too much time on like the sort of after effects of this, but World War II becomes a vehicle to establish new people as a new sort of aristocrat in and of themselves, right? Post World War II, multiple mm-hmm. generals become presidents, become, you know very anybody who is an officer is likely to have become some sort of uh politician in some some regards in the United States which always essentially the sort of reestablishment of like different but, but the same you know like kind of reestablishing the loop
1: sort of well yeah but I think that's mm-hmm. that for US history is is a turning back.
2: Because right. I don't think no. that
1: happened after World War One, but it certainly happened with the Civil War.
2: Well and and Pershing was the big U.S. general out of World War One, I, I think. And but I only know that because there's a Pershing Square in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if he ran for president or tried to get traction as a president as president in the 20s or 30s. But uh, like it just wasn't an option for him. And that war was so disliked right. by Americans uh, that, you know, that he couldn't get elected, whereas like you know Grant could and Eisenhower could. It holds true across the continent, especially in England and in America as well. World War One was hated. Right, right. Like most of the anti-war movies from the United States uh, are about World War One that happened, and those movies were all made in the twenties and thirties. Like it was, people were deeply disgusted by everything right. about it uh and it was you know there was no glorification of it there was no sense that that we had like defeated a great evil like with the nazis or anything it was uh you know just like it's a complete uh, we can't even like even with like the iraq war and the afghanistan war we can't really comprehend how universally despised world war one was by the victors. Like not even just like what we did to the Germans afterwards, but like by the victors, how much we hated that war. And what's kind
1: of Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, we, we see that in the, uh, the intellectual and philosophical, uh, path of the 20th century post world war one. Right. That's when we get, uh, we get modernism rejecting all of that. we, finally uh we get mm-hmm. uh that taking hold we get that that moving forward and i really mm-hmm. think that post world war 2 especially uh is the establishment trying to reestablish itself in so many ways uh mm-hmm. well and yeah. i
0: the thing i was thinking about is also what's interesting is i don't know if you've no, you've noticed i mean i don't know that it's it's 100% true but like there's been a decent number of movies in like the last 10 ish years that like want to sort of reevaluate world war one with the contextual lens of like the way we view world war two Where they like i'm thinking specifically i watched the not very good wonder woman movie the other day but like (laughs) a a while back but like i thought it was supposed to be good and as it turns out it's terrible but like um
2: it was fun in the theater. It was fun in the theater. I don't,
1: I agree. I don't remember I, it, it might very been, well, but I, I
0: watched so. it at home, like in the afternoon. I was like, mm-hmm. I want to watch something kind of just like a general, like action movie. And I was woof like I don't know. This idea yeah. to like recalibrate the way, like get Americans almost to like look back and review like World War One as a as just Nazi version one. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. There's this like right. desire to keep doing that. Like it's like this. I don't know if it's yeah. just because World I War Two's played out at this point, and like World War One is still like a a fertile field in which to like make propaganda films. I'm not sure. Well,
2: I think it. I mean, it's part of the aristocracy reasserting itself, like you were saying, yeah. and it's literally a a war, a war about the aristocracy. Like you know, a stupid aristocrat gets you know assassinated, and 13 million soldiers have to right. die. Yeah. Uh, you know, like there's. It's not like there was like. You know there's not the aggression like that you see like of like we're going to just seize this country like like I mean that's effectively what Germany wound up doing but like that's also what Germany wound up doing in World War Two. it's what Russia <laughs> is doing in Ukraine now like it's not it's not wasn't the war wasn't started you know preemptively for like resource reasons or like the sort of things that like wars are throughout history it's because you know and I guess Wars throughout history have happened because of things like assassinations, <laughs> but you, you get where yeah, I'm saying it, like, it's like, I mean, even at like the time there's, there's
0: a certain sort of understanding and has been an understanding that like, Oh, this is a very stupid yeah. war to be happening. Right. Like, like right. extra mm-hmm. stupid somehow, like an extra level of stupid because it's just like, Oh, well this guy got assassinated. And then there's sort of a weird domino effect. Now everybody's in a war that nobody's it sort of has that feel of like, nobody's certain, like why this war is even happening. Right. Right. Um,
2: Right. And it's the trench aspect of it, too, is, you know, trenches were something that happened as a new thing that happened in the Civil War. Right. At the end of the Civil War, they had, you know, dug in and created trenches, basically, uh, as a way to try to dodge like the cannon fire and whatnot and disrupt like, you know, line advances from infantry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there weren't a ton of large army facing large army wars between the end of the civil war and the uh world war one and so you know trench warfare was like trotted out it's like this is what you do to stop like the inf- infantry advance and boy put trench warfare with the technological advances in those right. you know 60 70 years it's just it's horrific but the generals were too stupid to understand any of that or care right uh, and yeah it's just and that's you know
1: that's one thing this movie very much shows is that they're not too stupid to understand they're very much mm-hmm. understand how many they people are going to die yes. they lay out how many people are going to die they care. don't and, care and
0: they're still using so, the rhetoric
1: well it's like that, that line it's oh, like
2: who do you think they'll listen to? Like that the Roger says, like, you know, like more importantly, who are they going to listen to? I think is what he said, not who they're going to believe. Right. So, well, and,
0: and you'll notice that like the, the generals and stuff, there's sort of a, like there's the cynical back room we get to see. Right. But like, they're still trotting out the sort of like, well, you're going to do it to be a man. You're going to do it for glory. Like, as though it is still the sort of war that these guys like read about in books or saw, when they were younger, mm-hmm. of like, well, you know, you're out just a bunch of dudes on a field, and like, there's a this sort of idea that like an individual soldier might distinguish himself. But if you're just a dude in a trench who's just going to get mowed down by a machine gun, that rhetoric rings very hollow, right? Like, it's like, oh, you're not going to be a hero in this war. You're just going to be another guy who gets machine gunned, basically. Uh, that's right. your only real possible fate. And, you know, this movie has a lot of soldiers who are very, very aware of what their actual fate will be. Uh, they had yeah. that conversation about yeah. like what's the worst way to die? Like which would right. you prefer? Uh, like and it's very cynical, right? Uh,
1: the hinge of that conversation I is. actually really love because it's not it's it's about not fearing death. Death is fine. Right. We fear being injured. We fear we fear experiencing something that will be like death but won't kill us. Right.
0: And when they, they've seen a lot of that because mm-hmm. like a lot right. a lot like the war killed a lot of people, but it also did grievous harm to a significant number of people who ended up living, right Like the whole right. r- field of prosthesis came into its own as a result of World War one. Uh, right Yeah, and plastic surgery as well was invented as a result of World War one. like oh, we maimed a lot of people. so right and, oh, yeah. and they got this they, they saw that right Those people came back to the trench and then they carried those people off to like the medical. Uh, tense, right? right? So they saw what that looked like, and that's like so they get it in their well, heads very easily, like, oh no, like, I it could be like that,
1: right?
2: And even like you know, gas weapons, oh, yeah, right, you know, were invented as like a you know, logical response to everybody's down in a trench, and uh like the like the one thing they did was like oh well that's not fair that's not playing by the rules and then they gave everybody gas masks and then they were just like well we shouldn't use those anymore like it's just right it's, yeah it's just uh it's like it's infuriating the more you think about world war one the more infuriating yeah. it is so uh,
1: yeah 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 which actually makes me even more mad about the the spat of movies trying to uh yeah, they're trying but, to hero, lionize World War 1.
0: <laughs> yeah, they just they just do, are doing that now and I don't know. I I you know the the I don't think it's been successful so far because they it just I don't think you're going to it's, it's going to probably take more time before you convince anybody that a World a weird, war one was good, but like
1: yeah. it's a weird swing back though, right? Cuz it was Saving Private Ryan uh established a new uh a new language for war video games. And the tech caught up really quick for those war video games, and then those war video games blew through World War II as uh, as a setting. So they went back to World War One. Uh,
0: right. I will say and, that most of the ones I've encountered with World War One do seem to take at least a fairly earnest. Like the the, the interesting thing about it is because you need to, in order to recreate World War One, you see need such mass casualty that they all have to yeah. have like constant respawn of the f- so you like the ones that I've played you just get mowed down like thirty yeah. times in a round because like well that's that like that's what it was, right? Like well you need a eight thousand men to charge because like you know, sixty percent of them are gonna go down. Well then like it's a really it's an interesting choice. It's it's interesting what they've what people have had to do to try to use World War One. I. I don't know that it's working exactly but uh Yeah.
1: I
2: yeah well i mean the yeah like that's that's part of why world war Two works for video games is that the whole of all military strategies were basically right. Right. thrown out uh and reworked and you know mission the concept of how to approach missions and objectives uh and coordination you know was all completely revamped right. on a, at a military level of like what they were you know willing to accomplish or going to do is like the closest thing to world war one is probably like in world war two is probably right. like the mm-hmm. landing at normandy uh but like the big lesson that they took from that was this is like was scale you know like the the scale of normandy is staggering because that's just one beach of five and that doesn't account for like the you know uh equal scale of like paratroopers coming in and everything right. else is just it's it was uh and and it's a coordination and logistics problem right because like what they were doing in world war one was like oh every two months we'll like you know throw the latest you know group of fresh recruits into the meat grinder lose all of them and repeat it two months from now whereas they they built up for a year and a half in order to pull off the logistics of you know d-day um and along with yeah and i think this probably popped in my head because i started watching dr strangelove okay. after i finished this mm-hmm. because i was like i haven't seen it in so long uh but you know like you know in the beginning of dr strangelove they pull out the plan and there's a separate envelope for each of like the men on that bomber you know for that particular plan and there's like you know there's probably a dozen other plans like that that were in the safe and you know every single one of them has like well thought out objectives and tasks and like it's very granularly been broken down and systematized and it's like you know it's what uh, what's expected of like a soldier after world war one is so different than what was expected during world war one
1: yeah interesting (laughs) pizza's here um (laughs)
0: excuse
1: me go ahead pat
0: no, no, I, I was yeah, I, I was thinking something and I changed my mind, so it's fine.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh I uh I was struck in watching this by uh the certainly true to life use of the military chaplain in this of <laughs> uh, of the chaplain being brought on just sort of to give God God's blessing to, to all that's happening here, right? Even even God's blessing onto the killing the random really killing of their own troops with everyone, you know, one out of revenge, one out of true randomness, one just unlucky, I guess. Uh, and yeah, he, he says, you showed bravery in the face of your enemy son. Now show it in the face of your own men is uh, just so, uh, He's a he's a priest who they try very hard not to make you hate, uh, but everything he says is terrible.
0: Well, so. I mean, that's the thing they'll write about it is, though, that yeah. he's he's sort of that, like, that interface between, like, he's like, oh, you know, be strong, you know, don't, don't. There's that, like, don't, don't, you know, be a man all the way to the end kind of stuff, right? right? And, and it's like that's that's still the old rhetoric, right? Like there's still this sort of, right. like, rhetoric being brought out to try to, like, convince these guys to, like, die nobly literally like <laughs> as a, as a sort of media sacrifice.
1: Yeah.
2: It's all part of like a separate set of pageants as well. Like, you know, here's your last meal. Here's like, you know, the last rites, and uh, you know, it's, and even like at the button at the end of the movie with the scene with the singer that, you know, it's all part of like managing and it's all a synchronized mm-hmm. like dance uh you know everything the chaplains is saying is pat and useless and uh it's very well done in that it portrays it as a scene we know like we know that the chaplains do this we it's like a trope of war films and whatnot like the absolution or last rites or whatever and you know but they also it also manages to put it in the same level of uh, dismissal that like the movie is approaching to the rest of like the military command and whatnot. It's 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 an it's of a piece with all of the rest of you know the structures that have brought the men to this point. Uh, so it's very it's very neat that the way Kubrick portrayed it can be very cynical and sarcastic about it, but also put it in the movie in a way that like you understand why the men are both resisting it but also going along with it like you know and that you understand the cultural context of like what they might be getting out of it even as kubrick is kind of saying like this is just another way they're manipulating you right
1: yeah what kubrick's very smart about uh is portraying all those different ways that these men are being manipulated
2: it's it's all those those thematic layers is what he just excels at like it's like in clockwork orange when you know after he's come out and has been rehabilitated he finds out that his buddies are Mm -hmm. now police officers like they weren't rehabilitated they're still as awful as they always were uh they just now have official state sanction for all of their violence uh and it's just like it's a very very like impressively layered dig at like fascist police states uh in clockwork orange and if you'll blink and miss it it, because it's not right overt but it's very it's a very important piece of like understanding the complexities of those of that movie or like movies like this where like you know there's that parallel between the chaplain scene and the scene of the woman singing at the end like that you know it's all just just a way they're like manipulating you so it's all the way the system is designed to keep perpetuating itself so
1: and you know that rolls downhill you know the the system perpetuates itself in a way that encourages people with small amounts of power to perpetuate the big amounts of power above them uh Mm you know to to the point where one of the best moments of this film is one of those cogs saying no, right? The the uh, the artillery commander saying, I will not do that unless you mm-hmm. send it to me in writing. Well, and, th- and that's uh, and the
0: interesting thing about it is it's like you, it encounters this one little piece where like, oh, somebody like put a, somehow some bit of bureaucracy was put into this thing probably almost on that no one thought would ever like come up or, you know what I mean? It's like, it's that like weird right. sort of like, Oh, there's this just once there is this w- like, um, sort of like bulwark that's in place. That, like, Oh no, actually he does like, you know what I mean? Cause like later on one person says like when they're in meeting at the sort of general, like the, the officers, like sort of that ca- like chateau, you know, chateau, like that, uh, palace that they've like taken over. Yeah. Right. They're like, one of them's like, "Oh well, you know, he requested uh, to the the order in writing, which is a, which is protocol or something." Like somebody offhandedly points out that that's like the protocol for it, and it's like, it almost feels like there's just this. It doesn't feel like it's a, necessarily on purpose that he's able to do that, but like it just happens to exist. That like it's a way for him to not have to. You know, you know what I mean. I don't know how to explain it, but like it doesn't seem like that's in there because they were worried that generals would misuse their power or something like that. You know what I mean? It seems more like like, there's some weird bit of protocol that like just happens to produce the result where he can say no and not like
1: immediately get. uh, Right. Well, also shot. It's, it's also immediately balanced against uh, the complete lack of all paper trail for the trial.
0: No, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I mean. It's like, Mm -hmm. I think that that's a, that's a,
1: and
2: no actual paper trail right.
0: for right, that. Right, because order. he won't get, he won't <laughs> well. make the, he refuses to make the paper trail, right? Like, he could have if he really wanted it to happen. Like, ha, you know.
2: And I believe they basically say we're just going to send him yes, to Yes, so, I mean, front he's going to die for like, it anyway. Of, like, yeah. the, um,
0: yeah. it, it's just one mm-hmm. of those things where, like, but yeah, it's, it's meant to contrast, right? Yeah. yeah. It's
2: very striking. It's a sort of contrast yeah. with the trial. It's, well, and it's like, there's, like, two things I feel like going on there. It's one of those Larian things again, right, where it's like, oh, look, the system works. But, like, right. it's obviously not because right. it's, like, creating those contrasts with the trial, with, like, his ultimate fate where they say, like, you know, oh, we'll have to ship him off somewhere, like, where he really right. belongs or whatever it is they say. They There's a dismissive mm-hmm. line made about him that you're oh, just yeah, like, oh,
0: no, They're still able to punish dead. him for it. It's just not, like, directly holding a trial where he gets, you know, murdered for it.
2: And there's one other little aspect to that is that as being an artillery commander, he's the technical guy that's in charge of the high tech military, you know, munitions for this particular like front, you know, so he's the guy that can work like the complicated computer that no one understands basically like it can't work without him which means he understands that and knows he has a little bit of authority to resist things that are wrong or at least you know even if he's because you don't necessarily get the idea that he's he would carry out the order if it was a written order, but he's not going to right, take the fall. Right. right. He doesn't
0: it. want to be the the fall guy for like blowing up his own troops. Cause they would just very easily, he knows that they would yes. very easily say that he just misfired. Right. That like.
2: Right. And as the tech guy, he knows he has just enough power to be able to push back. Whereas like if that order were given to Colonel Dax, like, and it's not about the technology of firing on your own troops with like the, you know, the, artillery it's it it would have a totally different context of like you know like dax just you know take six men and start shooting men in the back until they leave the like the trench it's a totally different set of relationships and expectations and also like what the men are doing because it's you know it's falling into that it's like too personal thing there's there's the technology detachment of it all as well that like that it's it's kind of Again, well, again, I'm only relating this because I just started watching Doctor Strangelove. it's like Plan R, where like the president is saying to you know General Turgidson, he's like, "Why, why on earth is this possible? I didn't think General. I was the only one allowed to do it." It's like, oh well, you remember that, you know, uh, you know, you remember like that senator was making a big fuss about our contingency plans. We came up with Plan R so that you know, like if you know, everybody got. You know, killed then a general could actually do it. You know, and he's like, yeah, but how did that happen? Well, don't condemn the whole thing just because the actions of <laughs> right, right, one right, man. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, what? it's like uh it's it, there's like an, a similarity there in terms of like what what how Jack General Ripper like sends everybody off onto nuclear warfare because he manipulates a little like hole in the system uh, to like this little like piece of the system that the artillery commander is like using to stake out a small amount of resistance well also
1: as as the tech guy he might be the first one in that chain of command who doesn't have the social protection yes right yes that's true he's so he's the first one down that line to be unlikely to be an aristocrat or at least a a ranking I mean, aristocrat. You know,
0: I mean, well, there's there's the <laughs> he would, guy. He would have the, to
2: have cal- he would have to have learned calculus in yeah. school, probably, to be able to be an there's artillery the, uh, commander. There's the radio
0: guy so. who who also has the map and knows like where this is going. Right? There's there's it's weird. It's not weird. I don't like it's it's strange in the way that like there's multiple steps of people who are. Ge- are in a position to look at the map and be like, you know that like what we w we're we're firing on our own troops, right? Like and it, like because like the system's sort of set up to have multiple people checking to make sure that the thing's going where they want it to go, right? Like it's 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 a thing that's set up to make sure that it's hitting the thing it's supposed to be hitting, which is the other side, right? But like right. it's also working mm-hmm. sort of counter to the general's wishes, which is like, oh, there's a bunch of people who know where this is going right and right. and it's whether or not his authority mm-hmm. is able to sort of overwhelm their resistance right all the way down the line and when it comes down to it part of the benefit that the artillery commander has is that a he's the technical know-how on it but also it's the fact that it is a they're, they're using another new technology which is that radio that allows them to order it from a distance right he's not next door he's way right. the hell away and what are you going to do show up with the letter yeah. in the next five minutes to make him do it like <laughs> right part of right. his ability to resist is is born of the fact that like oh you're using a piece of technology that means that he's you know could be like half a mile away
2: it, it, yeah and i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this is actually not even radio it's. Uh, but like actual it like cars, yeah, telephone, telephone lines like, yeah, because like probably. they have handsets, and it's interesting too, like the technology difference of a telephone versus like the telegraph in the Civil War, and how like even that extra layer of like communication changed warfare in that war, uh, and you know in the Civil War, like a lot of those uh, on the Western Front at least, you know where Sherman and Grant and also Thomas were initially. Uh, there was a lot of, like, constant technological change going on. Like, uh, you know, Thomas basically created the Army Corps of Engineers with the purpose of them being able to build pontoon bridges and also Mm -hmm. draw maps. Because knowledge of the terrain was, like, how you would win a battle. Like, and it's interesting thinking they had aerial reconnaissance somewhat in World War I. But, like i think about like the absurdity of like they actually if they actually got troops into the anthill they have no maps of the anthill mm. they have no way of like coordinating any attacks within the anthill it's just like oh get over there and then just sh- you know shoot guys it's there's 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 no you know, on like the no man's land battlefield, there is no more mapping it really. That's what the reconnaissance mission is kind of doing, but it's not like we have to map like, you know, two miles all around. So we know where to bring in our flank for our infantry advance, like onto the civil war. It's like, uh, but then you come back around in world war two and mapping and communication are like the ways that war is won. like, you know, aerial reconnaissance, like created, if you've yeah. ever seen Band of Brothers, like those insane topographic like models of like all of like France where like people were memorizing the mm-hmm. terrain and like and everything in, in extraordinary detail. Uh, and it's just like World War One is like this like valley of stupidity. So in right. so many ways, well, <laughs>
0: the, the, the thing that I was thinking about also is when you bring that up is that, that's also we get back into like one of the technological Changes that brought about the nature of World War Two is, for example, actually going to radio. Now you have mm-hmm. two-way radio communication, yeah. and that allows you to be significantly more mobile than you are in World War One. They do have radio, but it's it they can't like carry a radio with them at this point. It has to be powered. You don't have batteries that can really. Mm-hmm. handle it and all that sort of stuff so you're like oh there's a dude on a telephone wire half a mile away that we just ran that wire all along the back of the trench or whatever and mm-hmm. we he can't go anywhere right like you can't send a radio with the people running across the no man's land they Somebody will bring a radio mm-hmm. after you take the anthill and set up a new radio there, but like, you know, you're going to have to run a wire or across you, the whole thing. Or you,
2: in reality, they probably had the anthill two years before and all of their old equipment yeah. is still there.
1: It might still be there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably, yeah. I was interested to learn from the bonus features uh, that the original scripted ending was sort of that the blackmail worked and that everyone was saved. This is, James B. Harris says says that that was the original ending that they had presented to United Artists. And he says that when they changed it, uh, instead of just sending the changes to United Artists to get approval, he sent the full script again with the changes in it because he knew they wouldn't read it. Deeply
2: brilliant and fundamentally understands how Hollywood works on such a profound (laughs) level. And nothing has changed in 70 years. (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah. Now, uh, this does sort of contradict, uh, uh, James Nairmore writes the essay with the Criterion release and he mentions a, uh, an unpublished 1962 interview with Terry Southern that Kubrick Grit gave, uh, in which he says that, uh, Kubrick says that there were some people who had said you've got to save the men, but of course it was out of the question. It would have been pointless to save the men. And also the executions really happened in the historical mm-hmm. seed of this story. Uh, so, so Harris claims that originally there was a happier ending.
0: If you listen though to the Harris interview, though, there's a kind of um a kind of there's a flip side of that though. Even when he's talking, it sort of sounds like they wrote the script that was approved as a sort of, there's a kind of a vague indication that it was a decoy. Yep. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and if you combine that with the sort of way that Kubrick or somebody might talk about their, his work anyway, it's easy to see like, oh, well, you know, we always knew they were going to die. Like that's part of the history. That's part of what this, what makes the story so impactful, but like, you know, to get it approved, we'll just, you know, we'll write the happy version and then later swap it out.
2: You know, it was almost like, and, extra layer to the dance as well where it's like you know they had given a script that had the men surviving so that they could get financing but apparently douglas signed on with the understanding probably from an original script that like before like they took it to united artists that you know the men would not be saved because that was probably dramatically interesting to him and then used that like basically doing the kind of dance of manipulation right, that happened right, between right. the officers in the movie it's the same template for what's happening where like they then told douglas that was the plan and then he basically told them that they had to do it the other way now they had you know now they basically have cover to write the pages send them in and like make the movie they want to make uh there was a a great line and i think it might have been in the essay where like you know Douglas believed like the a- author theory basically meant whoever has the power is the author. And in Douglas's mind, that was him because it was his production company and he's the star that secured making the movie happen. Uh, so it's, it's, I think that is, it makes me respect Kirk Douglas a whole lot because that is a wonderful, uh, clear eyed way right, of thinking right. about Hollywood and stars roles and their production companies roles within that system that is separate from you know worshipping just the director as like you know movies burst from their heads like athena bursting from zeus's head you know it's like that there's there's a tendency to like have directors like put on that kind of pedestal but there is a lot of you know negotiation and and interconnection within The star system then as well as today in terms of what movies get made and how and why uh and the way douglas says that is like the best some succinct summation i've ever heard of that of that like dynamic
0: yeah well you know what it kind of reminds me of that's a really good point because like what reminds me a couple weeks one of our movies pretty recently uh who was it that was claiming oh it was um it's Willem Dafoe cl- kind of has this sort of claim that he's the only reason that Antichrist got made, <laughs> and it doesn't come from a money thing; it comes from a like convincing, uh, you know, convincing him to just make the movie or something like I, you know. And we kind of were, were chit chatting about that last time, but this is another sort of version of that where it's like, you know, really, you know, without Douglas's production company and money. That's the real sort of crux of whether or not it's going to get made or not, right? Like, does somebody mm-hmm. have some cash to bring to the table to actually, like, make this happen or not, right? And like, his it,
2: desire to do it, because right. it still wasn't an especially high-budgeted movie. And even if United Artists thought they would only break even on it, because I'm sure that's that when they came up with the budget for it, uh, they probably were like, this will get us to break even if we stay on this budget. And, but this is going to keep Kirk happy and he's going to make this other movie that we know will make a lot of money for right, us right, if yeah. we do this thing for him. Like, and it? Douglas knows that they're doing that for him. And, you know, it's like, uh, uh, that's the whole, like give and take the dance of it all. Right. And it, I mean, it happens today. It's there's direct analog this year with Top Gun Maverick, you know, you, you, the, uh, if the author is the person with the power that is Tom Cruise is the author of that right. film and you see it reflected in that Kaczynski was not nominated for best director so uh, Tom Cruise was nominated for best picture as the producer you know so
0: well it's sort of the way that like if we look back at the way sort of historians look at sort of history and like kind of moving away from the great man theory of history into something uh, something more nuanced and complicated you can do that very easily with film history and too, right? Like it's like, you know, something like Tom Cruise is, you know, might be counted as a great man in that scenario, but it took a bunch of wheeling and dealing on a bunch of people's parts to make these things happen, right? Like in this movie, right?
2: You know, and it took thirty years of this movie was probably in constant negotiations and script rewrites. There's probably fifteen versions of a Top Gun sequel that have been written that never got made. Because like you know, maybe it didn't pencil out, you know, in 2005 to do a $80 million version of Top Gun Maverick, but it did, maybe it did pencil out finally in 2017 to do like a $120 million version just because the economics had changed and like the script had changed and like the way they were going to make it had changed. Uh, Right. So it's, you know, those, it's, it's a, it's a very dynamic process and, you know, it's, It reminds me. I was reading the Wikipedia article for *Paths of Glory* last night, and there is a lot of very suspect, uh, like film student, like essay, like (laughs) text in some of like the descriptions (laughs) of things. Or it's just like, like it's very five paragraph essay in some of the sections where it's just like Kubrick's use of black and white was like so artistic, and he did this because like a blah blah blah, like you know, because he knew it would evoke a, a, a sense of love. And I was like. No, the movie was budgeted at $1 million. You, <laughs> right, right. When a movie is budgeted at that level, you shoot black and white because, one, it's cheaper to, like, you know, just get the stock and expose the stock. And also, when you shoot black and white, it's way more forgiving of time of day continuity. Uh, it's way more forgiving for your props, your costumes, your set design, and everything else because you have a lot more latitude there's a distancing effect with it so it's not just that it's like cheaper to shoot black and white it's black and white makes every phase of the production cheaper as well because now you can shoot for 14 hours a day because the continuity is easier to handle especially on exteriors versus only being able to shoot for three hours you know to match the day previous days three hours like you know if you want to have a short shooting schedule in the 1950s you would shoot black and white you know, and those sorts of things are like what would happen at a place like United Artists when they're doing a budget breakdown, you know, department by department on how are how are we going to finance this movie? Like, you know, well, you know, if we shoot in black and white, it doesn't have to be a two million dollar movie. Now it can be a one million dollar movie because our right. production schedule is going to be, you know, 20 days instead of being 60 days. And, you know, every single element you know interacts like that.
0: Well, and you know, you 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 kind of had to figure, right? Like like if you want to make, you know, like there yeah, they said budget, right? Like it, it's like okay, we've got to get this done. Like he's get they're already sort of got all the they've already got all the leeway they're going to get, right? They can't probably go very far over budget or anything mm-hmm. like that. So it's like all right, well what's like what's going to get this thing just out the door and like Kruger clearly knows how to use that stock anyway to to good effect anyway so it's like you mm-hmm. get that sort of like one of those classic sort of um synchronicities where it's like well like it it also happens to be very effective at evoking a certain kind of emotion yes. right it's like oh yes. well that works out fine we don't need color and that's where we'll get what we want out of this anyway and that is where
2: his skill as a still photographer really comes into play is being able to pull out that those like synchronicities like you know that's literally like what like one of the seminal photography texts is uh called the decisive moment it's about like knowing right when to like take the shutter to capture like that sense of synchronicity uh and and i think that like that that is why like it works so well for kubrick you know when he makes this movie in black and white and it looks the way it does and it feels the way it does because he's pulling in all of those that history of a, of being a still photographer into it that just yeah his use of wide angle lenses is amazing and does wonderful things with people's faces and their relations to the background and gets a lot of deep focus as well which would require more lighting rigs but also everything's in focus so now you don't have a focus puller Screwing up, you know, a take and then you have to retake it and now you're out off schedule. Like, you know, like there's advantages to using a wide angle lens that could make your production stay on schedule as well. And it's like being the sort of person that could bring all of that knowledge and skill together is really impressive. And it's not a simple movie that he made, like the shot in the opening when the camera starts following them around as they're like walking and talking like the two officers adolf minju and, and macready and they it's it's a wonderful complex shot and series of shots and how that is all put together both in the long takes and in the way it's edited it's i saw in the essay it was compared to max Ophuls, but when I was watching it the other night I was like holy shit this is a Spielberg movie like this is like this is like one to one Spielberg was influenced by this because he approaches dialogue scenes like this the way he rearranges the space like when he does a tracking shot on like dialogue and stuff and that they land in a certain way into a close up and and just like and the the dynamics of the way the camera is following the script and that the blocking is bringing itself to a small like dramatic climax like the way the actors are moving is going to land in the best possible way in the frame you know at the climax of that scene in the dialogue and it's just like there's an ebb and a flow to the way he manages each of the individual scenes that is just incredible and there's very few directors that have been able to do that and it's it's really really impressively skillful on like the the craft levels and uh, given the budget and that it's like his functionally his second feature it's i guess it's really his
1: third feature it's it's in
2: it's an incredible achievement so yeah
1: given given the budget and that a full third of the budget went to kirk douglas uh even more impressive right (laughs) right uh
2: I, yeah. I guess if this is his third feature. The equivalent for Spielberg would be Jaws, so it's like it kind of I like
0: it kind of matches up. in a It certain kind of, sort of matches sort of way, up right? in
2: a certain sort of way, right? So, and the fact that they were such great friends, like you know, after Spielberg, you know, in the '80s and '90s, and that uh, Spielberg took over, you know, AI when Kubrick decided he didn't want to do it is, uh, and then Spielberg made a very. Kubrickian film and AI. I, right. It's it's funny how much I have mentioned him coming up because like I was struck again and again watching this, like what an affinity there is between them. Right. But with Kubrick just like so iconically uh, cynical and Spielberg so iconically optimistic, but there's a weird affinity between those two directors that like, like it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So.
0: yeah and and, and yeah. really you brought up, I mean, we talked about Saving Private Ryan and stuff, but like, you know, the, and we and we kind of went back and we talked about how impressive the sort of their charge into no man's land is from a sort of visual perspective, right? You can you really can feel a sort of connection there too, right? Like the way that sort of like cameras like moving through those the mm-hmm. the craters and stuff to like follow Douglas and stuff like that is very feels very to me sort of feels sort of ahead of its time and sort of a in in the way it. it the action is shot i don't know it's like it's i don't watch a lot of action movies but like it feels very dynamic in a way that i would expect later not now absolutely not.
2: incredible for the time period uh i think you might find a few things like that in some of the late silent movies uh mm. because they were so unencumbered by sound that they were right, start, right, right, starting right. to realize what they were capable of doing um and a lot of people don't give enough credit especially to movies like from like 25 to like 28 for like how visually sophisticated they were getting Mm -hmm. with really complicated camera work uh but that scene like of the battlefield where they find douglas like three separate times and he's in his relationship to the camera is like he's is different in each time like you know they Mm -hmm. they you pick him up in a medium shot, and then as the tracking keeps going on, then like there's chaos and explosions. and You pick him up again, and now he's further from camera. Mm-hmm. But then, like when the shot finally ends, he's going to be almost in the close up. It's like it's really, really impressive. Or they cut to a close up. I don't remember, but uh, right. But
0: it still has that feeling. It has that. Like, They're sort of chasing and... him around on the field, and like it, it, it gives the sort of the the camera a, a sort of almost physical presence there. That's like oh yeah, like, trying to keep up with him. And it's just not something you know a lot of war movies that I've seen that I don't really like very much tend to be very like, I want to show the grandiose static mm-hmm. battlefield unfolding kind of thing, which is its own kind of thing. But this is very, well, I feel you're very much in the place with Kirk Douglas.
2: It's that it's the difference between, uh, editing the movie in your head and finding the movie in the editing room where like, you know, this movie in some sense was built around that tracking crane shot. Cause I think what they did is they built a really long dolly track. Uh, and they Kubrick already knew what lens he was going to use and probably like the kind of lighting package he was going to mm-hmm. use. So he knew how he could engineer behind the camera, like what he needed. And then if he knew the lens, he knew how, how and where he could build the, the dolly track. And then if they put, uh, a, a crane, like a Chapman or something on that Dolly track as well, you can not just have the classic tracking shot, you can actually have the crane moving in and out and up and down. So right, your work right. you're going in on the, the Z axis and coming out on that as well as going, you know, up and down on the Y uh, axis, you know, what you would say booming, the cameras booming up or down, uh, right. as well as just the tracking left to right, uh, which tracking is actually a different camera turn from a dolly shot so and that's such an impressive shot because it is really doing so many different things and in so much more in a such a more complex way than most people would set up a shot like that so like but if they built the entire idea of the battlefield scene around that one shot You know, they don't have to shoot coverage, they don't have to shoot your master shot and all your inserts and your close-ups and, like, the shots from the enemy's perspective and everything else, because they know we're going to tell all the story in just this one shot functionally, and then we have a few bits and pieces to get after that, Uh, so it it changes how you, you know, how you would do the movie from every single, you know, uh, part of planning it, so... Like right. if you're just going to get out there on the battlefield and we're going to get all these shots that we have boarded uh, and then we'll put them together in the editing room. And, you know, then we'll find something else in the editing room that we like and maybe we'll have to go get pickups later. It's very, very different. And you'll have a something much more like Thin Red Line, which is what Thin Red Line did, right? There's, yeah, yeah. Edi- edited line, for like two built years. Everything
0: in the edit room, right? Yeah.
2: They shot that the very end of their production schedule. Like I don't think there was any budget to go back for pickups, <laughs> and and so like the it all had to be, you know, you know, figured out ahead of time, and so it was, it was edited in his head, and you know, that's why it's so good,
0: <laughs> right? Well, and, and notor- like you know, from the from some of the special features, like you know, Carrie was out at that point, right? So like even even then, he had to sort of re re replanned the whole thing in his head again, because like, mm-hmm. Oh, we were going to have the three soldiers on the battlefield, but now we don't. Uh, I think it makes actually for a better movie without them being on the battlefield. Cause now you're just like, we didn't even see what they were doing. They just like, they are truly just victims of this machine. Like I was really know, struck by know.
2: that watching it and being like, wow, we don't even like meet these guys until like yeah. they're, the, they're like the ones that have been chosen. And then when I, I put on the commentary, I realized we briefly see them, but you don't realize you've met them, you know, like, right, you yeah. know, you, like
0: you walk by them, right? Uh huh. Yeah.
2: Like they might have the a line of, of dialogue, line that, right? Yeah. yeah. But, uh, it's, it, it is, a it does make it a stronger movie to not have them featured yeah. in that battle. Like it really, it, yeah, it just, makes them anonymous and that's what they need to right. be for the dramatic impact.
0: They're they're so. truly victims. They're just they're mm-hmm. just the people that were chosen to die, like as you know, sort of sacrifices. They're not really. They did no more, or no less than anybody else. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: You know, yeah. A couple other changes from the book that I do find interesting choices. Uh, the book and the the stage play too, both end at the execution. There's nothing after. Uh, so that moment of. Uh, first off, the comeuppance—the the the, uh, the general, the brigadier general facing punishment—is not in the book, and the uh, the reprieve of the uh, the men in the pub hearing the woman sing is not in the book, uh, which. It's already a very short movie. If we lost that last twenty minutes, it would be very weird. But right. uh, <laughs> I w-
0: I would say that the the film the or the um the the, the woman singing in the in the pub afterwards is sort of a very much a a film touch, right? Like you couldn't really mm-hmm. write yeah. that in a way that would be at all effective or useful uh, for your for your book. Whereas for your film, it's a nice, it's a really good wrap up. I think the comeuppance feels like the one sort of. Uh, what do I what do I want to say? So one sort of um,
1: wish fulfillment.
0: Yeah, like kind of. Well, we're not going to save the men, but we are gonna we are gonna get put in a little bit of the sort of like. Well, the bad guy has to get some. Yeah,
2: yeah. get something. I would say like the book ending. It sounds very literary. It sounds perfectly appropriate right, for a book. Right. And like Absolutely. like you were saying, like the end the movie ending with the song is not something that a book can really do. Uh, yeah. as effectively as a movie can do that kind of ending and I think the in-between scene uh, on a concept level feels like what Pat's saying uh, I think within like the dialogue of it the fact that like you know the really commanding general is taking down you know the middle general uh, because he is believes that Dax is basically just angling for that job. He's not he's not like kicking him out and giving come up and because he did a wrong thing. He's more like right. doing it because like, oh, I have someone better to take his place, someone that can really play the game that is much more amusing to me. I think there's a a right. kind of a, a cynicism to the dialogue and the way it's played that gets blown away by Douglas Giving that big Toshiro Mifune performance that he's so well known for, right? <laughs> it's just like he's like the most Toshiro Mifune of any American actor. Like he just like he goes full force into those big emotional like moments, like in Seven Samurai. And I think because Douglas is so big in that scene, I had always missed the subtleties of like like this guy has been the other general has been kicked to the curb simply because the uh, general above him thinks you're interesting and really thinks that it's kind of fun the way that you took down the other guy. Like, right. right. Like there's a level of political intrigue to that. That is very damning and very interesting. And I think it falls off a bit in the movie just because Douglas gives the kind of performance that he does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely agree with that. It, it, It does feel like, um, I mean, they do get it across quite well, right? Like, as Mm -hmm. a, you know, because the general does basically come out and say those things. In the end, we know that, like, oh, this has nothing to do with, like, legitimate justice or anything like that. It's just the whims of this uh, one aristocrat taking out another aristocrat,
1: like, in a sort of political move. It's all still a game to him, Mm -hmm. right? Right. All of this is still a game. Uh, Because all of these people are below him that they might as well, so far below him, they might as well not be people as far as he's concerned right um the uh the ending ending uh the woman singing uh gets us sort of a Renoirish brotherhood of man thing in the ending right, right? cuz she's singing in german and all of these ostensibly frenchmen recognize the song and start or at least start humming along with it and have an emotional response. I don't
0: I don't think they're singing along right. with it because n- none of right. them speak French. They're all American right. actors. But like <laughs> I think the impression is that most people would know and everything I I yeah. read about the song is most people from those regions would know the song. Would know it. Would know right. the tune, would know the song. And so yeah. it, it's, it's a, an effective song for that.
1: It's a tune that crosses borders, right? Mm-hmm. Uh and p- crosses the particular borders of the enemies. In this fight, right, the French and the Germans on each side. Uh, so, there's also the matter. There's a, there's a very interesting uh, bonus feature with the woman who plays that singer. Uh, that's mostly included because Kubrick married her very right. shortly after the movie, uh, Christiane. Um. But she also mentions that uh, you know, the way the way he sold her on the character was that uh, it doesn't matter if she's French or German; she's just not treated well. This is just right. uh, mm-hmm. a uh, a very small look <laughs> in a movie in a movie that we're all already ninety five percent through with a one hundred percent male cast. <laughs> we get one woman uh, epitomizing how. Women are treated in this situation. She's essentially a, she's essentially a comfort woman, right? Mm-hmm. right. She's been kidnapped. She's uh, been forced into this role, uh, singing here. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, uh, and then we get Dax walking up outside, being told that all of these men have been ordered. Back to the front immediately, right? And he, we end on him hesitating before he goes inside. You know, right. he, he makes a conscious choice not to tell them that order. Uh, I mean, which is, okay. Dax is an interesting character. All right, he he's he's the hero of the movie, right? And he's he's the big damn hero because he's he's <laughs> Kirk Douglas, but he. He has the sense of right and wrong. You know, he's a defense attorney. He doesn't do any of this out of personal gain, but he does buy into the system. Right. He is still. He is still. I mean, he's the an officer. officer, right? Like he yeah. is an
0: officer, and he yeah is does not want to not be an officer. He, right. he is
2: not resigning his commission over it. He's right. he's right. Staying in the system.
1: I think at one point he he faints. He says he says if you're going to punish anyone, you should punish me as the as the. Um, and he has to know enough to know that they would never agree to that anyway. Right. Uh but, you know, he's never him actually making that sacrifice is never never. Part it's never of the an game option, yeah. It's never right. something yeah. Yeah. Um The other change from the book that I wanted to bring up, because it's small, but I do find it kind of interesting, is the name of the space they're taking. In the movie it's called The Ant Hill. Uh in the book and, and Ant Hill, it's it's probably also a series of trenches. Ant Hill makes sense as a name. It's also a little insignificant thing in being an ant hill. They're literally making a mountain out of this ant hill as, as its big important thing. But Humphrey Cobb in the book names it the pimple. Oh, okay. To really show that this is just a thing that no one should actually care about. And I think they should have kept that.
0: I I I think it's you know it, 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 it they are evoking different things. I think they both work. I do like the pimple. I think the the difference is is that like the anthill has this sort of implication of like even once even if we were to get over there, it would be a a um, you know what I mean like there's a sort of like idea of they'd be lost. Up, yeah, right. you be you go in there and then you just be a bunch of dudes running around with no fucking clue what you're supposed to be doing in there, right? Because yep. we see how disorganized this entire mess is when they're trying to go over, right? Well, like, imagine how disorganized they'll be if they actually end up in there, right? Like, it, it kind of evokes an idea of, like, oh, this is, this is, even success would be hopeless. It, uh, whereas the pimple Im- has a yeah. different sort of implication of, like, why would you ever even want this?
2: There's a, a grotesque right. aspect to the pimple. Like, a right. pimple can be burst, you know, whereas, like, an anthill is, like, literally like evoking the idea of like machinery and like the replaceability of like the individual soldiers it being the
1: anthill provides us the mirror of you know we have the knowledge that the men on the other side who we never see are just like our men right Right. this is all this is all just Mm -hmm. ants in a colony uh everyone in there and i love that
2: I love that we right. never see anyone on the other side. Yeah, right. It's a very, yeah. there
0: really choice. is legitimately so. no enemy except for the people above you in the chain of command, essentially in this movie, yeah. which, yeah. which is which, yeah, very yep. good.
2: Yeah. It's, uh, so it's, it's almost Marxist in right. like the right. way that it like, uh, con- condemns the system, like in even kind of condemns Dax there a little bit at the end. And the fact that yeah. he's still part of the system and, Oh, I'll give them a few, give right, him a few right, minutes.
0: Yeah, Vax we'll isn't going to refuse this like, order, right? Know, he like, didn't refuse any of the other ones.
1: That's yeah. actually a, a place where I I thought for the first half, until they make it to the top of the hill in the thin red line, I thought that yeah, they were too. going to do yeah. a similar thing there. Uh, I was I was disappointed when we saw yeah, Japanese yeah. soldiers in the thin red line. Uh,
0: and then we see a lot of Japanese soldiers. After that <laughs> and and it gets pretty <laughs> gross in its own way. Um, yeah, not to not to sort of derail, but like one of the things I wanted to like when we were talking about uh, the song at the end is, I think it's important oh, that like I I'm really kind of impressed as including that part in the film as establishing the idea that like there is a system of hierarchies here and there are people below these soldiers. You know, right. that, like that, that exists. That, like there's, that, the, mm-hmm. the hierarchy doesn't stop here, right? Like it doesn't stop with these soldiers. It goes on and on further down and just sort of establishing that, like, these people who are oppressed will also be oppressing other people, like, if they, you know, at, you know, somewhere else at some other time, right? right. The, 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 it's not like we're not actually dealing with the absolute bottom and, like, the other people affected by the war. There's not, it's not just these soldiers. There's a whole mass of humanity that's being affected that is even less able to affect what will happen than these right men are
1: yeah
2: and it's it's really interesting that even with like the rush of world war 1 films in the last few years as you've been talking about pat that that n- no one is ever making movies about yeah the experience of civilians during world war 1 like you know this isn't just, out, you know, out in an isolated farm field. Like, France is fairly densely populated. Like, you know, not every place is not Paris, obviously. But, like, you know, there are communities of and farmhouses and people all around, you know, all of the front. And a lot of them have evacuated. But there's still longstanding communities that are dealing with the traumas of this war in ways that are just completely ignored right. by the storytelling yeah. we choose to do about the war um you get more of that in world war ii for sure especially like the italian new realism stuff but uh but it is it is never addressed in world war one and i think partly because a lot of it is very very yeah. bad things right, that right. happened that no one really wants to to talk about in any official capacity and, and you know and it, so.
0: whereas in you know in world war ii we we often like sort of end up with the sort of like heroic um resistance sort of like trope right you know like there's the there's each of these towns it's easy to focus on a, a heroic resistance figure whereas with world war one that, that doesn't seem to be a thing that has been noted frequently in sort of the the sort of text surrounding it. Right. They probably existed, but it's just not a thing that's like brought up all the time. Right. Whereas in world war two, that's, I mean, we see that with France and other, you know, it it just comes up all the time. Right. Like in the, in the writing about world war two, whereas World War one just, I don't feel like has that sort of background material. So like even filmmakers and stuff aren't thinking about it even, it seems like.
2: And there's the aristocracy element to it too. Like, you know, as, this is a war of aristocrats, and even more so, the people that are their serfs in a very real sense, still in, in the World War One era, are completely and utterly like beneath right. their ability to recognize. Like, even more so than their soldiers, who they don't already, they already clearly don't consider the soldiers to be human beings. Uh, the people that are on a hierarchy below the soldiers are all, just. Right? invisible. They're, they literally, they just don't exist in history in a in a meaningful sense in the stories that we tell about this war. Right. Uh, and,
1: and it's, yeah. you know, as far as American films go, uh, we get, we get some t- hints of home life in World War II films. Right. But for both World War II and World War, and, and the Thin Red Line goes out of its way to show us some home life stuff and do some very interesting spiritual uh, <laughs> dreamlike things with Uh, with the one man's wife uh but um by and large these are wars that didn't happen at home right right and uh and world war one especially we very rarely talk about it unless it's a film that's set in america in the country uh and uh happens to be set in 1915, 1916, 1917, And and a, a, a family member is sent off to war is conscripted as part of, uh, that plot. But
2: yeah, there's, that's always kind of the American exceptionalism about both of these wars is that none of them were fought on American soil, you know? Uh, and there's, there's, A disconnect in American storytelling from, because there probably are, there probably is a tradition of, you know, French and German stories about, you know, what happened to those people during the war, but it's not anything that's ever interested, you know, uh, the American filmmakers that are making these stories. So there's probably even, you know, tv shows and films like within those traditions but again it's not something that is you know then enters the festival distribution market in the same way that like a straight up war film like the new all quiet in the western front like does uh so there is a really really again that the the most anti-war at least disgusted of war films from america are in that interregnum between the wars Uh, In the early 30s, John Ford made Mm -hmm. a movie called Pilgrimage, uh, which is about a a mother who uh, it's a film divided into two halves. In the first half, her idiot son, who's about 20, but she's a widow, uh, uh, basically knocks up his, uh, you know, the girl next door. But they're a slight class below him, even though they're all still farmers. They're a bit more like sharecroppers. Uh, and the mother is so furious and refuses to like allow them to be married that she marches into town and signs <laughs> enlists him in the army. And since he's like only seventeen, he's forced to go because his parent has just enlisted him in the army. And he dies in World War One. That's the first mm-hmm. half. You never go to the war with him. Uh, the second half is like ten years later, fifteen years later, in modern times. There's a social movement to get widowed mothers. You know, who lost their only children in the war to get them all expenses paid trips by some of those, like, you know, like daughters of the American Revolution type of groups. Like, they were raising monies for charity things like this for people that could never go to visit their child's grave, will get a trip to, uh, to Europe she is selected as like the the only eligible war mother in their county to be like the representative from their portion of the state to go and she doesn't want to go because she feels so guilty about it and uh, basically has kind of a religious experience when she does get over there and like the whole arc of the movie is her dealing with the trauma of her decision of sending him off to war against his will and being responsible for it uh, and then having to come to terms with that and it's a different World War One movie than I've ever seen. It's really, really good. It's a beautiful, sophisticated, uh, uh, Catholic movie because you know Ford was a Catholic, and and it just kind of shows that that there were the opportunities for these stories of the people that aren't the soldiers that to be told about these wars, and that they're sometimes really, really amazing. But it's a shame that we don't get them.
1: So, yeah yeah uh in this movie before we meet the singer we get hints of family people talking about never seeing their wife or uh, their wives or kids again we get the the one fellow who's having you know the shell shock they call it uh and then the general says shell shock doesn't exist uh as (laughs) to try to (laughs) and then slaps him right um but he's like my wife my wife i have a wife mm-hmm. you know we get those hints of, of that broader humanity but we don't you know no one's dealing with what the state of the lives of those wives and kids are actually going to be like right whether or not these men come home there's there's bad either way mm-hmm. well uh, one Adam's being pulled away but also i think we're about done talking about yeah, it yeah, we, yeah. so time to pull this one to a close uh, yeah. we've been talking about paths of glory from 1957 directed by Stanley Kubrick. Next week, uh, we will be talking about House, the very weird Japanese movie that uh, Adam mentioned Jaws earlier, and it was the production company for House wanted it to be their Jaws. The answer to Jaws. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about more what what exactly that means um, uh, in the episode. Look forward to that. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Always a delight to have you. And we'll get you back here again soon, I hope. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, Vietnam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Ohtari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Been lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at The Adam Glass. My co host is John Patrick Bovatari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at JPatrick Dorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening.